my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. Your brain's job is to put together a model of reality, but all we ever get is our own version of reality. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Today, we're really going to the frontier. Our guest is gonna take us to the area most of us would not really think about as marketing, yet it underpins everything we as marketers do. It's the brain, who we fundamentally are, and the how behind all those decisions that are key to marketing, and oh yeah, life itself. Today, we're fortunate to have Dr. David Eagleman. 
it's hard to put a label on him, but let's call him a neuroscientist who happens to teach brain plasticity at Stanford and is a best-selling author, TV host, and very serious entrepreneur. Uh, fortunately for us, he is also a failed stand-up comedian, and what a waste that would have been had he succeeded at that. David wrote a book, Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain, which I've given to other marketers over the years as what I consider to be the most important marketing book ever written. But that barely scratches the surface of who he is and his contributions. A native of New Mexico, he was always the smart kid and wildly curious, and it took him on an eclectic path. Uh, he considered being a writer, electrical engineer, screenwriter, and was even a soldier in the Israeli army. He has important works and thoughts on who we really are, empathy, perceptions of time, consciousness, and even the possibilities for the afterlives. We got a lot to cover today. David, welcome. Bob, it's great to be here. Before we get started, I want to do a little warm-up. It's called You in 60 Seconds. Ready to go? Yeah, ready to go. Do you prefer Instagram or Twitter? Twitter. Westworld or Game of Thrones? I uh, I can't arbitrate between those two. That's a good answer. Early riser or night owl? Night owl. Houston or San Francisco? San Francisco. <laughs> Call or text? Call. Left brain or right brain? No difference between them. Salty or sweet? Salty. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Grants or venture capital? Venture capital. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Airplanes or helicopters? Airplanes. Web 2 or Web 3? Web 2. Slow and steady or pedal to the metal? Pedal to the metal. Crypto or dollars? Dollars. Conscious or subconscious? <laughs> Trust your subconscious. Come on. My subconscious is telling me to say the conscious. I like that. It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? My father. Favorite writer? Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Childhood hero? Carl Sagan. First job? Busboy. Last book you read? Entangled Life. Something you can't live without? Family. Favorite city? Istanbul. Guilty pleasure? Sylvester Stallone movies. If you could have one superpower... What would it be? The ability to see more of the electromagnetic spectrum. Ooh, I like that. Okay, let's get going. In Incognito, you talk about this idea that our conscious self is just a small fraction of who we are. Can you explain this concept? Yeah, it turns out that most of what your brain is doing, you don't have any conscious access to. So what you believe, the actions you take, uh, all, all these things are generated by these parts of your brain that you have no acquaintance with. So that's, in neuroscience, what we call the unconscious or sometimes the subconscious brain. And the conscious mind, which is the part of you that wakes up in the morning, that is like a broom closet in the mansion of the brain. You know, think about when you have an idea and you say, oh, I'm a genius. It wasn't exactly you that thought of it. Your brain's been working on that for days or weeks, evaluating hypotheses behind the scenes. And at some point, it cooks something up and it serves it to you. And you say, oh, I'm so smart. You know, for those of us in the creative business, we often talk about how do you come up with these sort of ideas. And I think most of us share this view that, you know, you, you load up your brain, you think about the issue, get all the data, and then you forget about it. And at some moment, when you're sort of the most in the zone, mine is a 15, 20-minute hot shower in the morning, suddenly ideas pop into my head. So you're saying my subconscious has been doing lots of work, and when it's ready, it just throws it up to me at the easiest point it can access me. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. We, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a funny existence that we have because we don't know what's happening under the hood, but then things just sort of appear like mind pops where you say, oh, yeah, hey, that works. Or, oh, I just thought of that person's name. Or, oh, I just thought of a way to view this problem differently and get past it. I just wrote my speech in my head. Let me rush out of the shower and write it down real quickly while it's still in my head. Exactly. You use the example of someone hearing their name in a restaurant. Just sort of, wow, they just said my name. Your point was that your subconscious has been listening to every conversation in the room. Is that right? Well, yeah. All the conversations in your room are hitting your eardrum. And even though you think, oh, I'm ignoring everything except for the conversation right in front of me, your brain can't help but hear those other conversations. And then it has to try to cut out the conversation that's happening in front of you. It's called the cocktail party effect. When somebody says your name in a different conversation, you're aware of it, which means you have been listening to everything. So let's go through it for a marketing standpoint. When you're unconscious, subconscious, here's a message over and over. Does it examine the claim or does it accept it based on how many times it's heard it? How does that work? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, uh, when you hear something, you can be skeptical about it and, uh, you know, chew on it and so on. The thing is, there's something called the illusion of truth, which has been studied for a while, which is if you have heard something several times, you tend to rate it as being more truthful than the first time you hear it. So politicians, of course, take advantage of this all the time. Uh, everyone does this in various ways in their life. But yes, if something is said many times, you think that it somehow must be true. So we're going through it, of course, in this country right now with trying to figure out what's real news, fake news, how we wind up with this polarization. How is this piece of our brain and our self playing into that? This has been an area of great interest for me lately. So my whole life, I've been studying this issue about our internal model, which is to say, you know, your brain is locked in silence and darkness inside your skull. It doesn't have access to the outside world. All it ever has are the little dribbles of signals it gets through these spheres in the front of your head, your eyes, or through air compression waves in your ears or things it touches and so on. And so your brain's job is to put together a model of reality. But all we ever get is our own version of reality. And the part that's been fascinating to me lately watching the polarization is the way that we all believe our own reality so firmly. So every single person thinks, okay, look, I understand the truth and I have no idea what those other people are doing. They're trolls or they're misinformed. They're just ignorant. And if I could just sit down and talk to them, or if I could just shout loudly enough in all caps on Twitter, they would have to understand the genius of what I'm saying and would come to repair their ways. And the part that's been so fascinating to me is that we all believe this all the way down, that, that we have the truth and that other people do not. So let's talk a minute about news organizations, the old days, pre-social, that a news organization would get information, they would gather it, they would usually examine it, they would process it, some people would argue curate it, and put it out. Do you think that it's very hard for a society to function without that going on? That if you left it to everybody who all, always thinks they're right and gives everybody the microphone, which of course social does, that we have a problem? You know, it's funny. I think that it's easy to engage in retrospective romanticization where we think that it used to be sort of better and normal. But if you look at the 20th century, 
it's far more bloody than anything we've had in the 21st century. I mean, take not only the world wars, but, you know, the, the communist revolution in China or what happened with Nazi Germany or the Hutu massacre, the Tutsi in Rwanda or so on. It was an awful time pre-social media. What that demonstrates is you don't need social media for humans to get very caught up in their particular view and think the other side is wrong to the point of picking up arms and, and murdering other people. And in fact, news in previous centuries has always been just as biased in completely nutty ways. For example, people used to do uh, pamphlets. If you look at, let's say, the American Nazi Party, you know, they print pamphlets with all kinds of the craziest stuff and they mail it to people's houses. This is how it you know, went last century. And you've got tens of thousands of people on the mailing list and so on. It's like social media in that way. It's not different. And I think it's probably a dangerous illusion if we think that somehow people used to tell the truth and things used to be peaceful because it's quite the opposite of that. So the question I think is, you know, does social media have anything to do with what's going on now? I think maybe a tiny bit, but that's not the driver of it. What the driver is, is the human capacity to make in-groups and out-groups. And this is something that, you know, evolutionary theorists argue this goes back to the days when we functioned in small tribes of, let's say, 150 people. And, you know, you knew the people in your tribe, so you would trust them. And the tribe on the other side of the hill, that was the them. And you would, you know, be suspicious of them. It's just extraordinarily easy for us to assign labels. And it doesn't take much to say, oh, you're on the other side. You're them. You did an experiment, I think, about empathy. And was it a, a knife going into a hand? Yeah. So we put people in the brain scanner. It's called a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner. And we show them six hands on the screen. And the computer goes around doo -doo -doo -doo, and picks one of the hands. And then you see it get stabbed with the syringe needle. And that evokes uh, essentially an empathic response from you. Your brain lights up what we summarize as the pain matrix, which is to say, even though it's not your hand getting stabbed, you feel the, the pain of someone else's hand getting stabbed. And this is the, the neural basis of empathy. Okay, but now what we do is we then put a one-word label on each hand. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Scientologist, Hindu, atheist. And the computer goes around, picks a hand, you see the hand get stabbed. And the question is, does your brain care as much when it's a member of your outgroup getting stabbed now? And it turns out that's the answer, is that you don't care as much when it's not your label getting stabbed. And of course, we measure all people from all groups. And you care more when you see your label and you care less when you see other labels. And this is very depressing how low level and instant this is where your brain has its in-groups and has its out-groups. Now, interestingly, it's a little bit flexible. So if we then put a one-word sentence on that says the year is 2025, and these three groups have teamed up against these three groups, the computer randomly picks the division, now you care more about your allies. So whatever two groups have just been randomly assigned to yours, now you care when you see them get stabbed more than you cared a second ago about it. So anything we can do to organize people in bigger groups is probably helpful, huh? That's exactly right. And this is what I've been working on is how do we complexify our group memberships? I think this is really going to be the key to solving the polarization issue that we're facing, which is to say, how do we figure out what are the threads that link us across the easy group divisions? So I'll just give an example. The, the Iroquois Native Americans, for, for hundreds of years, there were these six tribes that fought in these bloody wars. And eventually a new leader came along 
came to be known as the great peacemaker. And, and his idea was, he said, look, let's take these six tribes and for each member of the tribe, assign them to a clan. So you're a member of the beaver clan or the eagle clan or the elk clan or so on. And now it's harder for one tribe to attack another tribe because these two guys here are both members of the beaver clan. These two guys are members of the eagle clan. So they've got these other relationships that cross cut what seems to be the original group. And so it makes it more complexified and, and that actually brought peace to these, uh, to these tribes that were attacking each other. So one of my interests right now is how to make what I'm calling algorithms for unity, which is, let's say it's on social media. Let's imagine that you and I had totally different views on some, whatever, on our political parties. How do we make it so that you post something and it happens to be something I like too, something about your dog or something about surfing or whatever. And so I like that post and specifically what the algorithm looks for is posts that are cross-cutting like that, that reach across party lines. And those are the ones that get amplified uh, instead of the ones that are merely within party lines. Let's go back in time to put you in context. You were born in New Mexico, the dawn of the 1970s, youngest son of a psychiatrist and a biology teacher. Can you describe that, that time and place that you grew up in? Yeah, I was outside of the Albuquerque city limits up in the mountains. So in retrospect, it was a very isolated sort of childhood. And as I said, I'm a real extrovert. So as soon as I was able to, I got myself into big cities and I've always loved uh, being right in the thick of things. But, you know, it was a, it was a nice childhood. My father had built a, an extensive library. He, you know, he actually built the, the shelves like library stacks that you could walk around and pick books. He was a terrific reader, was fluent in eight languages. And so we had books of all languages and all types. I guess in retrospect, it was really wonderful to grow up with not much else to do besides that. You're obviously a very curious guy, and this sort of has driven you in your whole life. Was that curiosity influenced by all this, or was it biology? Was it just genetics? Oh, impossible to know. In fact, the nature versus nurture question, of course, is a dead question in biology because it's always mm -hmm. both. But happily, my parents both were real feeders of that curiosity. And every night at the dinner table, we would talk about things and they would ask me questions. And, you know, we'd pull out a map of the world and talk about different countries. And, you know, my father would pose questions to us, most of which we didn't know the answer to. And, you know, with time we learned all this stuff. It was really lovely to have that time. And I I feel like as the world has sped up, yeah, mostly because of the internet and social media and video games and so on, it's harder to rope our kids into just spending time with us doing that. Now, I will say on the other hand, I am very cyber optimistic about what's going on. I think that there is a good chance that our children will grow up to be smarter than we are because they have so much opportunity to tap into the entirety of humankind's knowledge with any question that they want to ask Alexa or Google Home, they're getting the information that they need. And so, you know, I happily had my very smart parents to ask questions to, but these kids can ask a question and watch a TED Talk and in 15 minutes get the world's expert on some topic, giving the best talk of their life, or they can see a little video on something. And the reason this matters is because they're getting the answers right when they're curious about the question. And that makes a big difference from the point of view of brain plasticity, which is to say things stick if you care about the answer. And it's harder to make things stick if you are just being told in a classroom 
uh, that you need to know this particular fact. So supposedly you wrote your first words at age two. As a kid, you could repeat back to someone a list of random objects and even in reverse order if they ask. Is that brain power or is that something that's learned? And how did that define you? I mean, you must have been the smart kid. Was that your image as a kid of yourself, self-image? Oh, that's interesting. I guess it was. But, you know, some of these things are just party tricks. They're just intellectual exercises that's no different than learning how to do a layup or something. So, you know, the thing about memorizing a list of items, there are all these memory tricks that you can use for that. And I did that as a kid and, you know, really, really enjoyed doing that sort of thing. But yeah, I think it's so helpful to, to, to get the proper feedback about, hey, you've done something that's smart and, and isn't that great? And, you know, my parents always gave such wonderful feedback about that sort of thing. And when I came home with good grades and so on, and that matters because when you're making choices later in life about whether to stay up all night and really dig into the book and really understand something all the way down to the bottom or to take the lazy way out, it's useful if you are used to making sure that you understand something all the way down. What lesson do you use today that you know came from your childhood? Ah, I think it's never giving up. One example, I happen to be sitting in front of my bookshelf right now, and uh, there's some copies of my book, Some, which I'm really happy to say became an international bestseller and has had a real wonderful life. It got turned into two operas and stuff like that. But the point is, I wrote this book, Some. It's a book of fiction, and I submitted it to so many agents and publishers and got a stack of rejection letters as high as the book. And people, some people said nice things like, I really love this book, but I have no idea how to market a book like this. I wouldn't even know where in the bookstore to, <laughs> to put a book like this. Tell us about the book for the people who don't know what some is. It's a book of 40 short stories. It's literary fiction. And all 40 stories are mutually exclusive. So they all tell incompatible version of what's going on with our lives here. It was just so hard to get published. But the point is, probably well well past the point where everyone thought I was nuts, I just kept sending out letters. I just kept making phone calls and asking people if they had a connection and working on it until, until finally, through a string of connections, I got introduced to an agent and she said, okay, I'll take you on as a hip pocket client, which means you're not really a client, but I'll just keep you in, in my pocket in case I see an opportunity. And then she called me two days later and, and she was as surprised as I was. She said, wow, Random House just bought this. <laughs> anyway, the key is I've gone about everything in my life that way. And like everybody, I've had so many rejections. I, I imagine that I may have more rejections than the average person just because I just keep getting rejected until at some point I don't. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time, with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Dr. David Eagleman. You, you did graduate from college in a degree in British and American literature, and you went on to get your Ph.D. in neuroscience. But along the way, you joined the Israeli Army. You spent a semester at Oxford. You had a, a try as a screenwriter and even a stand-up comic. So what was driving this, and how did that send you to where you are today. Yeah, I was really trying to find what was fitting because I had been good in science all growing up. And so 
everyone told me, hey, you should be a scientist, which, which was good advice, except that no one really knew the details of how to steer me. So, you know, one person said, hey, you should go into waste management. There's a lot of money in that. And someone said, oh, you should be an actuary. I looked into that stuff for about five seconds and it's like chewing on autumn leaves. So everyone I feel like was giving me a well-meaning advice that didn't fit me at all. And so when I went to college, I was studying all kinds of science. I was doing electrical engineering for a while. I was doing space physics for a while. I was always doing British American literature in the background because I that was my first love. But I couldn't find what I was going to do as far as career-wise goes. And so that's why I dropped out of college. I wasn't really enjoying college that much, and I just felt there's so much of the world to do and explore. And so I went off and, and did that for a while. You know, all of that added so much depth and color to my experience that I think I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And, and what happened is the last semester of my senior year, that's when I took a neuroscience class. And the gentleman teaching the class was probably 85 years old, and he was using literature from the 1960s, but it didn't matter. I just, I was immediately hooked on it and read every book at the library on neuroscience. And so when I went to apply for neuroscience graduate school, I said to them in the interview, look, I know I don't have any biology on my transcript, but ask me what I know and I'll tell you because I've read every book in the library on this. And so, you know, they interviewed me and asked me and I, I guess I just squeaked in there. Let's jump to the perception of time. At age six, I was put on a horse by an uncle, and all of a sudden the horse reared up. And I still remember, I mean, to this day, I'm sweating thinking about it, every detail of trying to hold on to that saddle horn and then beginning to slide off the back of the horse. And my life went into completely slow motion. I see a story from you that was, was your childhood story about falling off the roof of a house and time moving to slow motion. And I know even at that moment, as a kid, that aroused your curiosity. So later as a scientist, what did you learn about that? So the main thing I learned is, you know, when I had fallen off the roof, it seemed like things were moving in slow motion. But what I learned as a scientist is that no one had ever actually run this study of does time go in slow motion when you're in fear for your life? So I tried to figure out how would I study this because it's actually quite important. And also, you know, you could build completely different kinds of dashboards for cars or for fighter jets or whatever if you could feed information to the pilot faster when things were really hitting the fan. But it turns out it had never been studied, of course, because you can't put people in life-threatening situations. So I figured out how to do that. I, you know, I took my whole team to the amusement park. We went on the scariest rides. It turns out none of that was scary enough to induce the effect. But I finally found something called scad diving, which is where you drop from a 150-foot tall tower backwards in free fall, and you're caught in a net below going 70 miles an hour. And that, it turns out, is scary enough that you really feel like the whole event took much longer than it did. So with my students, I built a device that sits on the wrist, and it flashes information at you in such a way that we could measure whether people were actually seeing in slow motion during the event or not. And uh, skip to the punchline, it turns out you cannot actually see in slow motion during the event. Nonetheless, you believe that the event took much longer. So it turns out the whole thing is a trick of memory. When something very scary is happening, you're laying down more memory because that's what memory is for. When things are hitting the fan, that's when you write down everything going on. And when you read that back out, 
it seems to have taken longer. You have much more memory than normal. You know, when you're in a car accident and you're watching the hood crumple and the rearview mirror fall off and the other driver's facial expression and so on, you're writing down every detail of that. So when you say, what just happened? What just happened? What just happened? You think, oh, well, there's that, there's that. So your brain estimates, oh, that must have taken a long time. But in fact, it's not moving in slow motion. And of course, part of the reason you can evidence this for yourself is, you know, the person on the seat next to you who's screaming, no, it doesn't sound like they're saying, no, like that. And that's because, you know, and it would have to sound like that if time were actually running in slow motion, but instead it's just a density of memory issue. So when we look back on our life, and, you know, I hear people talk about this, that we really tell our story of our life through all the things that were bad that happened to us, the scary stuff. So you're really saying that that's true. The memory uh, is much more filled with that than it is, oh, wow, it was a beautiful day today, and I walked to work, and the sun was beaming on my head. It's anything that's emotionally salient. So that can be good or bad. So it can be your wedding day and the birth of your children and so on. It can be good memories, too. It's just anything that is routine, the brain doesn't bother writing down. So, for example, the first time you ever drove to your work, it maybe seemed to take a bit of a long time, but after a while, it essentially seems like zero time because you're just running as an unconscious automaton, and you're not writing down any new memories. So when you arrive at work and say, okay, what just happened? You, you can't really remember anything. So the whole key to making it seem as though you've lived longer is to always seek new challenges so that you're writing down new memories. Question for those of us on the back end of life. Why is my memory gone to hell? <laughs> um, a, a big part of that, again, has to do with this issue that memory is for things that are novel. And as you grow older, you've sort of figured things out. You, you know how to run a company, Bob, and you know how people act generally, and you know the spectrum of personality types. And you know, even when you travel to a new city, you've kind of seen it all before. You know, when I, oh, here's a cool tourist spot. Here's the Starbucks. Here's the hotel. You sort of know how things go, and so your brain just doesn't write things down in the way it used to, and memory is simply not as important. But again, this is the key to seeking novelty, to putting yourself in situations where you're always in between the levels of frustrating but achievable because then your brain starts writing things down. And of course, you, you know this if you spend you know, two weeks at home doing the same old thing. When you look back at that, you just have no memory of it. But if you go on a vacation for a weekend... To Burning Man. To Burning Man, exactly. You come back and you have... You remember every day. Exactly right. Is that why my pattern recognition is so good? Because I've now seen it all? That's exactly right. So, so there's always this trade-off that happens, which is you become expert at the things that you're doing. That's why you're able to run companies because you are trained like a machine to do that kind of work. And that's the good news. The bad news is you have less novelty. Let's talk about your TV work. You have been an advisor for all sorts of folks. You've had your own... TV show, you've helped other people with theirs. You were even a scientific advisor for Westworld. Where did this itch come from? What motivates this for a scientist like you? You know, I mentioned at the beginning when you asked who my childhood hero was, uh, it was Carl Sagan. And it's because he was a great scientist. He was such an insightful thinker. And also, he was able to phrase things so that we could all tap directly into the beauty of, of what was going on around us in the world. And so I watched him at nine years old and just immediately thought, that's what I want to do. And in fact, my parents, when I was growing up, they, would, they wouldn't say, oh, David's going to be the next president of the United States. He'd say, they'd say, David's going to be the next Carl Sagan. Like from the time I was a little kid, they were saying that stuff. So when I reached a point where I could, you know, I've been running a, my neuroscience career for a long time. 
started proposing to various production companies this idea of doing a series called The Brain, which is equivalent to Cosmos, but but the inner Cosmos. And uh, it's interesting because that's another example of getting rejected so many times. And people essentially uniformly told me, look, you can't do a show like Carl Sagan anymore because audiences don't have that same kind of audience loyalty and attention span. They said, you have to do something like, you know, stand in an airplane and take your shirt off and jump out of the plane and then talk about stress on the way down and so on. And I said, you know, I want to do something with a seriousness of purpose. I don't want to do something just to get eyeballs and things like that. So anyway, I kept going. I kept talking to production companies. I finally found one that got it, that got exactly what I wanted to do. And we pitched it to PBS together. And uh, and then I was able to make the brain in exactly the way that I wanted to. So I'm very happy that I was able to show some people wrong. It was nominated for an Emmy and it you know, has maintained a real place in a very small segment of the public. But the, anyone who cares about stuff like that, who cares about the brain and, and learning and being exposed to the beauty of something. And so increasingly, when I teach my classes at Stanford, I run into students who say, hey, when I was 13 years old, I watched your series, The Brain, and that's why I'm here. That's why I'm now at Stanford studying this. So it's really, it's uh, very rewarding. Do you think your TV work is just an outgrowth of being a professor? I feel like it's different in the sense that the TV work, it, in a sense, it's putting on a completely different hat and it's trying to figure out, okay, I'm not having to make sure that you know this and this and this and this, but instead, how do I tell stories? How do I lead the audience through a journey where by the end of it, they've learned something, they've been turned on something that's that's changed their internal model and you know, hopefully blown their mind because everything that I get to do every day is mind-blowing stuff, but you have to take the time to go on the journey to get there to see who we are, what your existence is. The brain is essentially the densest representation of who you are. And as I mentioned, you know, even the tiniest bit of damage to your brain, a tumor, a stroke, traumatic brain injury, anything like that, will change who you are and how you decide and what your consciousness is. It is an opportunity to look under the hood there. And I love when people come with me to do that examination. When we did you in 60 seconds at the top of the episode, you said venture, not grants. Why be in business? You're in academia. Where did this come from? Okay, so I've been in academia my whole life, and I got very used to it. You know, the way you write a grant. And nowadays, grants to the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation, even for the best people, there's a 10% chance of of hitting on a grant. So I've been doing that for a long time, but what happened is in 2015, I gave a talk at TED on this research that we've been doing in my lab about sensory substitution, which is passing information into the brain via unusual channels, for example, through patterns of vibration on the skin. And so I gave this talk at TED and immediately a number of venture capitalists came up and said, hey, we want to fund this as a company. So I made this very sharp turn in my life and started a company called Neosensory. And for the last seven or eight years now, I've been running that company. And it has been amazing. So I'm still, I'm teaching at Stanford, but I'm no longer running a lab anymore. And instead, I spend 90% of my time running, you know, as CEO uh, of this company. What it has taught me is to be able to see the walls of the fishbowl that is academia. And, and I also, by the way, because I have a foot in both worlds now, I also see the walls of the fishbowl of the entrepreneurial world. But by having the opportunity to be in two different worlds and switch back and forth, I can finally see what the opportunities and the limitations are in, in both of these. But anyway, I think venture capital can just move things along 
much faster. I actually, the, the work that I've been doing at Neosensory, I actually had applied for a grant to the NIH and the NSF, and both of those got rejected with the statement, and I'm quoting, they said, uh, this is not incremental enough. Because to, I always thought incremental was a bad word, but they actually meant they wanted it to be more incremental and I was trying to take too big a leap. And so for that, I find venture capital so exciting that people say, you know what, you've convinced us that the data is there. Let's, let's go for it. So in 2013, you wrote a New York Times op-ed about what our brains can teach us, basically asking, you know, why fund brain science? A decade later, what do you think? Wow, that's an interesting question. I still am such a believer in funding brain science, but back when I wrote that, I was probably really thinking about the NIH and the NSF. And now I'm so pleased to see all the other opportunities going on. So not only is there venture capital when appropriate, uh, but there are also private philanthropists, but there are all these new things that are coming along with Web3, these neuroscience DAOs these decentralized autonomous organizations where people are collecting up money and figuring out, hey, how can we help fund good neuroscience research in this new Web3 kind of way? Anyway, it's just, it's wonderful to me to see that neuroscience has, has gotten more attention and that people care about funding it. So let me hit a couple of quick topics here before we come to an end. Knowing what you know and the conversation we've had today, are our schools teaching the right way? If not, how should they be teaching? How should we redo education? You know what? I think there is a way to redo education, but it's very simple. Redo is too strong a verb for it. The, the whole key is to teach our children the skills of creativity, which is about taking all the stuff that's just gone in to your head and bending and breaking and blending it to come up with new versions of things. That's really the heart of both art and science. And it's what we summarize as creativity. It's just this constant remixing of what's under the hood there. Now, what happens in our schools currently is they teach all semester and you take a test at the end. And if you regurgitate properly, then you get a good grade and that's it. All we need to do is add an extra week in there in the end where we say, great, we've taught you all the foundational stuff you need. Now, for your final project, I want you to take all of that stuff and remix it. Yeah, I've taught you how to do electrical engineering with this stuff. Now invent a new thing. Okay, I've taught you all these you know, great artists. I want you to mix up their art styles and make some new thing. I've taught you all these great whatever writers. I want you to come up with your own version that's a mixture, a blending, a breaking, a bending of what you have learned so far. So it would actually be very easy. There's just no emphasis on this in the in the school systems currently, but this is something I've been trying to spread. My previous book before my last one was called The Runaway Species that I co-authored with my friend Tony Brandt, who's a musician. And we have been trying to spread the word on this to, to schools because it costs almost nothing and uh, just requires a tiny compression of what is already there. So here we are on a podcast. I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. Audio's hot at iHeart. We're totally in the audio, radio, podcast, et cetera. Explain my business to me. How does hearing something differ from seeing something? How does conversation differ from reading? Any difference in memory of audio versus visual? You know, it depends a bit on the person. So we've heard of visual learners and auditory learners, and that's true. You know, people are different places on the spectrum. So some people are going to love podcasts and other people won't. What has been fascinating to me, yeah, I mean, you're in this world, I'm just watching from a distance, but fascinating to me was the rise of popularity podcasts during the pandemic because people realized, 
you know, I want to walk, I want to garden, I want to wash the dishes, whatever. And so they found it so convenient to be able to strap in some ear pods and go and, and be a part of what's happening and learn new things. You know, there's something so wonderful about eavesdropping on the conversation of, of other people who are talking about interesting things, hopefully. And that's why podcasts are really here to stay because other activities are here to stay as in, you know, gardening and washing dishes and walking and a million other things. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Just keep going, just keep banging on all these doors and eventually the doors will open. So you've had this remarkable life. You've done so much yet you're lucky you're still young. What do you plan to do with the next chapter? What's the big unanswered question that fascinates you now? Mm. I guess I'd say there's three things there. One is scientifically, I still have a hundred questions on the plate about the brain. I'll, I'll presumably be studying this till the, till the day that I die. In fact, back in 2004, I wrote uh, an article in Discover Magazine, the cover article, which was called 10 Unsolved Questions of Neuroscience. And they're still unsolved all these years later. And so there's plenty, <laughs> plenty of stuff to sink my teeth into in terms of great unsolved questions. One of the things I've been working on lately is the question of why we dream I mean, it's bizarre that we spend every night of our lives having these completely weird movies that we're the star of, and it's never been explained why we dream. So I have a new hypothesis of that that I've been publishing about in the last few years. Tell us that one real quickly, because it's really interesting. Yeah, it's simply that when the planet rotates into darkness, the visual system is at a disadvantage because you can still hear and smell and touch and taste in the dark, but you can't see, obviously, in evolutionary times before electricity is what I'm talking about. So what we know is that when data coming in to a particular sense stops, the other senses try to take it over. And what we've learned in neuroscience in the last 15 years is how rapidly these takeovers can occur. And so what I realized is the brain needs some way of defending the visual territory. And so the way it does this is every 90 minutes, it just blasts random activity into the visual system to keep it defended against takeover from hearing and touch and so on. So I call this the defensive activation theory. It's the only hypothesis on dreaming that provides quantitative predictions about how much different animal species will sleep depending on how flexible their brains are. And the predictions come out spot on. And so I'm super excited about that. So scientifically, I'm going to keep doing that. In terms of my writing, I still have at least six more books that are outlined and all in various stages of pregnancy. And so those will all happen. But as I said, I'm always interested in new methods, uh, pedagogically speaking, for, for transmitting knowledge. And who the heck knows what's going to exist in 20 years from now? We might have really, really new methods for that. And so I'm really excited to, to jump on that. And then finally, entrepreneurial wise, I'm looking way ahead. You know, once I'm done with my current company, Neosensory, I'm looking ahead to my next company, which will be about brain plasticity, but specifically, how do we build machines that take advantage of what we've learned about brain plasticity? In other words, the way we build everything now is based on these principles of 
hardware and then software that runs on top of that. And you make this very clean and efficient hardware and clean and efficient software. And that's a cool way of building things, but it's not at all the way that mother nature does things. And so the situation we run into is, you know, when the Mars Rover gets its wheel stuck, it dies. And that's what happened to, to Curiosity. But, you know, when a wolf gets its leg caught in a trap, it chews its leg off and it figures out how to walk on three legs because real animals don't give up. They figure out how to change things around and, and be creative and change their body plan and, and make things happen. And so I want to figure out how we can build machines that take advantage of what we're learning in neuroscience. Pretty cool. And TV? What are you going to do in TV? I'm working on several things right now. Uh, one is a fiction series, and then I have several documentaries. Let's end the way we always end on math and magic. We always ask our guests to tell us the greatest math mind they know, and usually within the context of marketing, that's some big analytical person, and the greatest magician. And again, in the business world, that's usually some intuitive, creative ideas person. Now, in your case, you're probably going to have a little different view of that. But in your case, who would you give us? Let's put them on the pedestal. Greatest math person, greatest magic magician. Um, mathematician, I would say Pythagoras because, you know, he obviously was a mathematical genius and had his whole school and, you know, came up with such new ideas. But, but what I find particularly interesting about him is he had synesthesia, which means a, a blending of the senses. So when he would think of numbers, that would trigger a color experience for him. Each number had a color, a size, a shape, things like that. And synesthesia is one of the things that I've been studying in my lab for many years as an alternative form of consciousness. And so it's very cool to see a mathematician uh, who, who leveraged his synesthesia. For magician, so I've been teaching a class at Stanford called uh, The Brain and Literature. And what I realized is that mystery novelists are doing precisely what magicians do, which is they lead you down a particular garden path so that everyone in the audience or the reader in this case thinks, oh, okay, I got it, I got the next thing and so on. And the writer or the magician is simply taking advantage of, of your assumptions about things. So I would list Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, the, the writer of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, as my favorite magician because he does exactly the same sort of tricks such that everything is right there in front of you, but you don't see it until he wants you to. I was going to ask you if we're living in a simulation, but I thought maybe that's a step too far. Well, you know, the answer to that is um, we certainly may be. Um, and there are many philosophers who take that very seriously now as, as a real possibility. And some make the argument that it's almost certainly the probability. David, thanks for giving us so much to think about, by the way, not only on this episode, but on everything you do, and for giving us some science that underpins our world of marketing. Thank you so much, Bob, for having me. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with David. One, when executing on something new, embrace the familiar. David shares that our brains are wired to have stronger convictions in the messages we hear most often. As marketers, we should remember that when we're tempted to freshen up a campaign, we should keep elements of classic messaging in order to forge stronger relationships with consumers. Two, always seek new challenges. As David says, memories reserved for things that are new and novel. David cites scientific research that shows the more familiar we become with a task, the less energy our brains assign to it. Implement slight changes to your routine so you can remain sharp and attentive. Three, find what fits. 
David talks about how he had a myriad of interests growing up, like literature, physics, and stand-up comedy. Despite getting pushed toward different career paths by family and advisors, David kept pursuing his passions until something neuroscience fit. Four, push through rejection. So often we think that ambition ends with either success or failure, but David reminds us that we, not our wins or losses, decide where our ambition takes us. I love how David says his book, Some Was, and I quote, rejected until it wasn't. So if you're hitting a roadblock while launching a new idea, try pushing through. The roadblock may only stop you until it doesn't. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Susan Ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Marissa Brown for pulling research. Our editors, Derek Clements, Mary Dew, and Ryan Murdoch. Our producer, Morgan Lavoy. Our executive producer, Nikki Etor. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.